0: Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Thomas DiLorenzo, economics professor, former professor at Loyola University of Maryland, and a member of the senior faculty of the Mises Institute. He's also the author of a number of books, including The Real Lincoln, How Capitalism Saved America, Lincoln Unmasked, Hamilton's Curse organized crime, the unvarnished truth about government and the problem with socialism. He's also got a new book in the works that we'll talk about. Tom, welcome to the show. Please be with you, Tom. Just a few weeks ago, we had the West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin step up to kill what President Biden was calling an infrastructure bill. It sounded like a lot of green nonsense and social engineering but the Republicans wholeheartedly signed on to the separate bill that would supposedly go more towards roads and bridges and other things traditionally thought of as infrastructure, but they don't seem to have any problem with the government building it. What's the history behind that?
1: Well, there's a, certainly there's a long history behind it. But the beginning of the American Republic, There were a number of proponents of this. Alexander Hamilton was the chief proponent of what they called internal improvement subsidies. And it was government using government tax dollars at that time to to pay corporations to build roads and canals. And the opposition was Jefferson and the Jeffersonians primarily, not exclusively, but primarily. And Jefferson himself simply said, well, the Constitution would have to be amended first to allow for that. James Madison, when he was president, was was against it also for the same reason. He thought it was unconstitutional, but it was a, a form of a corporate welfare, basically. It always has been. And in several of my books, including The Real Lincoln, I write about how, at the time, you're talking about the turn of the century, the year 1800, 1801, 1802. In various states, they were very busy building privately funded toll roads that were called turnpikes. They built literally thousands of miles of turnpikes. At the same time, Alexander Hamilton was out there oh, the private market will never supply adequate roads. And and he was proven wrong even before he said that. He was proven wrong about that. But he was a big government interventionist, and he wanted to tax the farmers of America with a whiskey tax and other kinds of taxes to pay for corporate welfare. So that his manufacturing industry friends, such as they were at the time, could be subsidized with government subsidized roads to bring their goods to market. And after Hamilton died, you know, he was killed in a a duel in 1804. Fast forward 20 years, Henry Clay picked up the mantle of what Hamilton called the American system. And one plank of the system was corporate welfare for road and canal building companies. And, And Henry Clay was a hemp farmer from Kentucky. And he came right out and said that the reason he got in politics was, one, he wanted the government to pay for roads so he could ship his hemp to market. And two, he wanted protectionist tariffs to keep foreign hemp out of America. And so his total greed and cronyism is why he admittedly got into politics. And then Abraham Lincoln took up that mantle after that. And when Lincoln announced that he was getting into politics in 1832, he said, there are three reasons why I'm getting into politics. One, he wants protectionist tariffs. Two, he wants corporate welfare for, at the time, railroad corporations primarily. He didn't call it corporate welfare, of course. He called it internal improvement subsidies. He was a railroad industry attorney at the time. And three, a a national bank run by politicians to finance all this corporate welfare. And that, those were the three planks of what Hamilton called the American system. And it dominated the economic policy discussions in the first half of the 1800s, uh, until the Civil War, basically, when it was all put into place one way or the other.
0: I did a previous episode for not just people that live in western New York, where I am, but anybody who's familiar with the Buffalo Bills. They play in a place called Orchard Park which was originally either East or West Hamburg. I can never remember which one it was. But those towns basically exist as population centers because of a businessman named Alan Potter. There's still a road named after him. He built the first roads from the city of Buffalo out to what we now call the South Towns. And he actually died repairing one of his roads. He was out there with his crew, making sure that his road wouldn't be sitting there unrepaired for weeks, months, or years at a time like the roads we suffer with now. And a tree branch detached from a tree that was very tall and fell down and hit him on the head and killed him.
1: There's a a long history of disastrous government road building and canal building in the 19th century. For example, Abraham Lincoln, was the leader of the Whigs in Illinois in the early 1830s. And he, more than anybody, was responsible for getting the legislature to allocate about $11 million at the time for supposedly road and canal building projects. And the end result was by 1837, nothing was built, nothing was completed. There were a lot of roads to nowhere. There was massive theft of the money, and they defaulted on the $11 million. And in 1837 was the year there was a depression in 1837. And not just in Illinois, but nationwide. And that ended all that. But in my research, there's an excellent history book on this by a man named Goodrich. I think it's called Canal and Road Building in America, something like that. It's one of those boring books that academics like myself read. And he shows that during that whole time, from the turn of the century until basically until the Civil War, state after state toyed with using state government funds for road and canal building. And every single state, by the time you get to the Civil War, 1861, every single state except for Massachusetts had amended its constitution to make it unconstitutional to use tax dollars to be given to a corporation for any purpose at all. And it was because of the debacles that were created by, putting government in charge of road and canal building or infrastructure, as we say today. And so you would think that the politicians would have learned their lesson from 50 years of disaster. But of course, a lot of people made a lot of money from those disasters. If you were one of the contractors who got all this government money, it wasn't a disaster for you. You're living in a big mansion, you're leaving a fortune to your children, and you walked away with all that money, even though the citizens got nothing basically for it. And so instead of learning that lesson, what they did was to increase corporate welfare for internal improvements by orders of magnitude during the Lincoln administration by massively subsidizing the railroad corporations. And that really got the ball rolling for infrastructure. And of course, that led to the biggest political scandal in history up to that point, the Credit mobilier scandal during the Grant administration's because of all the fraud that took place in the building of the transcontinental railroads. In my writings, I also point out that the great James J. Hill built a privately funded railroad, the Great Northern, without any government subsidies, not even land grants, which his government-subsidized competitors had. And the Great Northern was by far the most efficient transcontinental railroad at the time, most efficiently built and most efficiently operated. And when I would talk about this, I used to teach a course in American economic history at my university. And I would put on the screen in the classroom, you can go online and find the actual map of the roots of the Great Northern. And I would compare it to the routes of the Union Pacific and the Central Pacific, which were the government subsidized railroads. And the Great Northern was just a, a winding route through the Rocky Mountains from Minnesota, almost a straight line, with the exception of getting around some of the Rocky Mountains. The government subsidized routes look like a bowl of spaghetti, <laughs> because what happened was every politician said, I will vote for the subsidy, but you have to run a separate line to my town. And even if there are only two customers a year riding the train from his town, if you wanted the subsidy, you had to run the line to that to there. And so because of that, they all went bankrupt. The government subsidized railroads all went bankrupt at one point, and James J. Hill never did.
0: Did did you get a chance to watch the series? I think it started on AMC called Hell on Wheels.
1: No, I didn't see that. It was about
0: the Transcontinental Railroad and the guy that was in charge of Credit Mobiliade, Thomas Doc Durant. This is fictionalized, but one of the things he says is he's sitting down in one of the first episodes and he's looking at the map and he says, you've got my railroad running in a straight line. He goes, goes, I'm getting paid by the mile and and you've got my railroad going in a straight line. And he actually hits the engineer over the head. They kind of acknowledge that this was a big scam.
1: There's been a lot of research done on that. And for example, it was so ridiculous that they would build railroad lines on top of ice packs in the Rocky Mountains in the early winter. And then when the spring thaw came, of course, the tracks would collapse but that was all good for them because then they would get paid twice because they were paid by the mile. You don't have to be a PhD economist like me to understand if the government says we're going to pay you by the mile, there's an incentive to make more miles. Whereas James J. Hill in the Great Northern, he had an engineer who found the Marias Pass through the Rockies, which was a pass that was discovered by Lewis and Clark in 1803. And no one had found it since then. This was, we're talking 1870s now. And this guy found it, and it it enabled uh, James J. Hill to cut at least 100 miles off of his route. And so he's a profit-seeking entrepreneur, and the incentive to him was to find the shortest route, the quickest route, and and to build the best, strongest tracks, because that's how he made the most money. But to the, the politicians running the government subsidized, it was all one big gravy train, and the greater efficiency, greater inefficiency... In the eyes of the public, meant more money uh, to them, and they spent. Uh, I wrote in my in one of my books how capitalism saved America. About how Durant himself spent most of his time, whining and dining politicians. He would take them on hunting expeditions, by train car, where they would shoot buffalo by the thousands from a train, and then uh, then he would feed them a big banquet, and then they would go back to Washington and vote for more subsidies. That's what he did. Whereas James J. Hill was out there, hey, he was giving cattle and seeds and, and uh, other things to the people and the communities because he would he understood that if these communities along his route didn't thrive, neither would his railroad. And so that it was a total different uh, world with uh, with James J. Hill. And it interesting, and I I had an email once from a descendant of Thomas Durant, who had read what I had said about him. And he was almost apologizing for his great-grandfather <laughs> and his crimes.
0: <laughs> That's funny. There was a Ron Paul event, gosh, this probably 2012. It might've been before that between the two campaigns he ran. And I met a descendant of Alexander Hamilton. And I had said not flattering things about Hamilton. And he came up and didn't tell me who he was and asked me about him. And I said, well, Thomas Jefferson said he was a nice guy personally, but politically, he was terrible. <laughs> and, uh, and he laughed. He said, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. It's from your books, actually, that it kind of dawned on me that Hamilton and the Federalists and the Whigs and the Republicans, with some nuance and exceptions, are the same party. After these three things for generation after generation, and they just stay at it until they get it.
1: It's the party of crony capitalism. And by the way, there's a new book out by Patrick Newman called Cronyism. He's an excellent economic historian, and he's associated with the Mises Institute also. And he he really gives chapter and verse of this whole period up until 1847, from the time of the founding cronyism to 1847. You might be interested in having him on your podcast. But yeah, that's right. It runs from Hamilton was basically the political water carrier for the uh, New York, Philadelphia, New England corporate elite of the day, and then the Whig Party became the party of big business and corporate welfare, and then and, and Lincoln, of course, was a Whig for twenty-five years. He was only a Republican for thirteen years, if that, and not even that. You know, the Republican Party, yeah, ten years. He was a Republican for ten years, maybe nine or ten years, and but a Whig for twenty-five years. And so it was basically the same thing. Uh, I think every member of his cabinet was a former Whig. Uh, when I visited um, Springfield, Illinois, Illinois, several years ago, and I went uh, visited Lincoln's home, it was the biggest house on what is called Old Aristocracy Row. And the house next door was his good friend, who was, and the little plaque said he was a Whig politician also, and he miraculously secured the co- con- government contract for all the. Were all the tin cups supplied to the army during the Civil War. Uh, and it didn't sound like competitive bidding to me uh, to get the tin cup contract. But they yeah, they were always the party of corporate welfare. And with some exceptions, you get to uh, Harding and Coolidge are pretty decent presidents as far as that goes. And they, 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 I'm sure they had there was their share of uh, corporate welfare and cronyism going on. That's politics. But they did cut taxes at the beginning in the early nineteen twenties, and and there was a depression actually in nineteen twenty. The year nineteen twenty, that was worse than nineteen thirty-two, and or nineteen twenty-nine rather. The first year of that depression was worse than the first year of the Great Depression. But yeah, what the Republicans who ran the government did was nothing. They sat back. And, if anything, they cut some taxes and. and and didn't have any major intervention. And the depression of 1920 lasted one year. Whereas uh, fast forward another decade, they responded to that depression or the beginning of a recession anyway with massive government intervention. And the result was a 15 year long Great Depression.
0: Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, I've seen a lot of political movements come and go over the 14 years I've been writing about politics. The right went from being dominated by the interventionist neoconservatives, to the anti-deficit Tea Party, to the economic nationalism of the MAGA movement. The left went from Obama's hope and change, whatever that meant, to occupy Wall Street, to Bernie Sanders, the Squad, and Democratic Socialism. Through it all, the one institution that causes most problems with the American economy has escaped serious criticism. My new book, It's the Fed, Stupid, is an appeal to Americans across the political spectrum to stop supporting politicians and policies that don't make a difference and focus on the one institution that causes most of the problems they worry about, the Federal Reserve System. Download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid at itsthefedstupid.com. And now, back to our episode. the answer that you quietly save the day. You were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just logical, to crazy. Whenever I bring up that the roads and what we now call infrastructure was originally provided by private companies running for profit, And when I say that, I'm not talking about people getting taxed and then the government paying some private company. I mean, they own the roads and they ran them. They put up their own money. Somebody will always come out of the Twitterverse and say, yeah, well, the roads were all terrible. And that's why the government had to take them over. Like just about everything the government takes over. If that's not the real story, though, and if they had gone so far as to pass amendments by just before the Civil War to outlaw government infrastructure, how did it change so fast? How did the government end up taking this over?
1: Well, the government always takes everything over eventually uh, when it comes to infrastructure, telecommunications, education, the coastlines, pro- uh, property, and, and things like that. And I think the Civil War was a big turning point, but true, the, these people who are writing you on Twitter don't know what they're talking about. The roads were horrible. The government roads were horrible. It was the private roads that were excellent. And that's still true today, isn't it? You know, look, at, look at look at the, the roads in the, the, the big private developments. Look at Disneyland. That's a big private development with private roads. And they, you know, compare that to downtown Baltimore or some, some <laughs> things like that, as far as roads go. And uh, so they just don't know what they're talking about. But this debate over infrastructure, was you know one of the major debates of, about economics from the time of George Washington and Alexander Hamilton until the Civil War. And when the Civil War, that ended the debate, the American system of Hamilton, which was protectionist tariffs, corporate welfare for infrastructure, and a national bank, or at least the nationalization of money, it was victorious. And so the railroad subsidies, one of my articles I wrote DeLorenzo's De Lorenzo's First Law of Politics is that with government, failure is success. <laughs> the worse they do, the more money they get next year to do this to do whatever it is they're doing. NASA blows up a space shuttle. We give NASA a fifty percent pay raise the next year. The, the, the schools fail to educate the kids. We give them a bigger budget for failing to educate. Just the opposite of, of free enterprise. And, and so that, that was a, a, a cronyism bomb, the, the ending of the Civil War and the adoption of these massive subsidies to the railroads. Because once the railroads got theirs, every, every corporation just about in America started going to Washington and saying, where's my, if it's good for the railroad companies, why not the dairy farm industry? Why not this industry and that industry? In fact, the word lobbyist is said to have been coined by Ulysses Grant himself because the lobbying or what what economists call rent seeking became so pervasive in D.C. after the Civil War that the Willard Hotel, which is still there, is where all these lobbyists would hang out before their meeting to bribe some senator or to bribe the president uh, for some sort of income transfer. And, And so they hung out in the lobby And uh, and Ulysses Grant called them lobbyists because they hung out in the lobby of the Willard Hotel before they would go into the senator's office or whoever they were trying to bribe for some goody at taxpayer's expense. And that became run amok. And another thing that happened was that the courts eventually in the late 19th century, there's an interesting little book called The Birth of the Transfer Society by P.J. Hill. I think he has a co-author. And it talks about how the, the legal system eventually begin, turned against private property. And you get shortly after the Civil War, there were still a lot of court cases where the government would try to uh, introduce price control laws or various interventions uh, like that. It would be, be struck down as a as a, an obstruction of uh, the Contract Clause of the Constitution uh, or, or the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. But that evolved the, the, the lawyers eventually they what, did what Alexander Hamilton did. He, he invented the idea of implied powers of the constitution and so you get enough clever lawyers and uh, filing enough lawsuits against the government you're going to change the court case law is going to change things and it did and, and and when once we had protections of property rights and against all these interventions, price controls and everything else, the Supreme Court itself eventually rolled in favor of these things with just different lawyers in charge. I think Americans have to understand that in our history, there were two views of the Constitution. The Hamiltonian view was that properly interpreted in quotation marks, the Constitution can be used as a rubber stamp on, on unlimited government power. Whatever government wants to do, we can if we interpret it properly by the way we status would want it to be interpreted, Hamilton effectively said it can be a rubber stamp. And it has been for a long time. Judge Andrew Napolitano, in one of his books, A Constitution in Exile, wrote that not a single federal law was ruled unconstitutional from 1937 to 1995, not a one. And so it became a rubber stamp. And it's still that to this day. When the Democrats are in power, they become constitutionalists. They want to interpret the Constitution Uh, Their way, and the Republicans are in power. They're constitutionalists, and they want to interpret it their way. And I think that had a lot to do with why we got to where we are today.
0: Not only did Hamilton open the door to the government taking over infrastructure. Really, when you get into that whole implied powers idea, there is no limit. If you don't like government healthcare, if you don't like government education. All of this really has its roots in that one idea of implied powers.
1: Yeah, it certainly does. That that came about in his debate with Jefferson over the constitutionality of a national bank. And Jefferson said it's not in the constitution. The constitutional convention debated it and, and, and voted against it. And you would think that's pretty clear evidence that it's not constitutional. And that's when Hamilton came back and said, no, there are implied powers. If you read between the lines, there are implied powers. And he relied on the necessary and proper clause of the Constitution, where it says the government has powers to do what is necessary and proper to achieve the delegated powers, the actual powers that government does have. The language says the government should do whatever is necessary and proper to achieve those things, running the army and the navy and deciding who's a citizen and these things that are actually listed in the Constitution. So that's the weasel wording that was put in, which is why, actually, the Constitution was a bloodless coup d'etat. They started out saying they wanted to revise the Articles of Confederation, but they ended up scrapping them and creating this Constitution with all this lawyerly weasel-wording in it, like general welfare clause. And, and, and that's you know, it's another thing that has been used to, uh, to justify just about anything. When I first started writing articles about Hamilton, before my book *Hamilton: Cur- Hamilton's Curse came out, I had an email from a law student at New York University, and he said, I've been reading your articles about Hamilton, and thank you for writing them. He, he said, I'm sitting here in Nadine Strawson's constitutional law class at NYU, and for the past two weeks, she's been praising to the treetops the Hamiltonian interpretation of the Constitution, which is there is no Constitution. The government can basically do whatever it wants because you rely on case law, you know, 200 years of case law, which has been used to basically water down whatever limits there were in the Constitution. I'm glad you
0: brought up how this implied powers fiction got started because the other thing we're suffering from and have all of our lives is price inflation. And although I guess even Hamilton might not be uh, on board with the Federal Reserve having the powers it does today, he did want the government to have its bank. And another objection to we should get rid of the Federal Reserve is while we had all these panics in the 19th century. And one, my impression is that most of the panics had something to do with monetary inflation, either by one of the two national banks or Lincoln and his greenbacks or something. And also that they weren't as bad as what the Federal Reserve has given us over the 20th century and this century. Is that true or is there more nuance to it?
1: There was always government intervention. The fact that we did not have a central bank for a period of time does not mean there was no government intervention. The, the National Currency Acts and the Legal Tender Acts passed during the Lincoln administration basically nationalized the money supply. And, and as far as the, the panics and then the boom and bust cycles, they usually occurred whenever governments would suspend specie payment, saying that banks did not have to pay. If you went in to get gold and silver in return for your uh, your paper money, which you are promised, that was suspended from time to time, and that's usually what created monetary inflation and bank inflation, and price inflation during the, these periods. And and by the way, even even Obama's uh, yeah, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under Obama, Christina Romer, she was a professor. She still is, I guess. She was for many years at the University of California, Berkeley. And the one thing she was known for in her research is showing that the economy became more unstable after the Fed was, it was more stable before the Fed, was after the Fed. So even a left-wing Democrat like Christine Romer, who Barack Obama hired as his chief economic advisor, knows this. And there's a study published by George Selgin, my friend George Selgin, S-E-L-G-I-N, and a couple of co-authors, on a hundred years of the Fed turned 100 in 2013. You can find it online. And it has hundreds of uh, footnotes in it. And it's a scholarly piece assessing what kind of a job the Fed has done. And on every uh, account, made price inflation worse. A dollar is worth, what, two cents, 2% of what it was in uh, 1913, boom and bust cycles they become deeper and more severe and more frequent unemployment. they failed to make the problem of unemployment better than it was before the Fed. So on all accounts, the Fed has made things worse for the past 100 years than it was before that. So there's a lot of scholarly literature on that. And so the people who just come out of the blue and say, but there were panics in the 19th century, simply don't know what they're talking about. They're lazy or they're just uninformed about this. It's
0: interesting. Of course, a lot of people might be confused as to why there'd be a Broadway show called Hamilton, which we (laughs) assume is produced and and acted by mostly liberals, because he's supposed to be the father of capitalism, but he's really the father of big government. So we shouldn't be surprised that uh, they would want to fate him and a musical. Tom, I don't want to keep you all day here. I'm going to link to a bunch of your books. What's the book you're working on now?
1: I just finished the manuscript for Regnery Publishing of the Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics, and hopefully it will be out by the summer. I just sent it to them a couple of weeks ago.
0: Okay, well, I hope you'll come back. I'm looking forward to reading it, and then maybe we can hit some of the highlights on the show once it's out.
1: Sure, it be my pleasure.
0: Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook. It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And I'll see you next time. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to Freedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.